Welcome to the Lent Report Live. Today, we're going to take a look at the best food cities as rated by food and wine, the importance of our five senses, an update on SNAP, how we're saving money and the environment, Facebook's whistleblower is going after the metaverse, and lots on sustainability. But first, Sally's back from vacation. Welcome back, <laughs> Sally. And Thank you, Phil. here to tell us what you found in Spain and Morocco food-wise. <laughs> yes, well, my my big takeaway was the um, the food in Spain. Um, the people of Spain really appreciate their food. Their food is fresh. It is beautifully presented. Um, they take their time enjoying their food. One of my favorite things was the central market in Valencia, Spain, which we browsed for a very long time. And this is where you can go in this big, beautiful old building that is surrounded by a historic cathedral. And you can go and buy your, you can go and see a butcher. You can go get um, your pork, your poultry at different places, your bread, your cheeses, your fruits are in one place, your vegetables are in another place. And on top of that, while you're shopping, you can uh, grab a sandwich that's big enough for two people for about three euros. And you can even get a glass of wine or a beer to walk around and enjoy lunch while you're shopping. And it's just a really lovely experience. I, I also noticed that um, the people of Spain are very healthy and they're walking and they're biking everywhere. And um, there's just a great energy. It's very relaxed and they don't seem stressed out. <laughs> so that was one of my big takeaways. And then another thing I wanted to mention was um, was the respect for recycling. And we saw pretty much no plastic, especially when it came to food, no plastic pack packaging on food, no um, plastic bags. Um, there were recycling bins for everything everywhere. And um, I eat yogurt every morning for breakfast. And so I got my Danone yogurt and it was in a glass container. And I really appreciated that. It was also just a really nice presentation of it. Oh, if I remember properly, um, you know, for dinner in Spain, people sit down around 10 o'clock at night uh, for dinner. How was that for you? Yes, they do. In fact, a lot of the restaurants, um, they close for a siesta around 4.30 and then they don't open back up until 8.30. Um, and then they stay open till midnight, one in the morning. And so um, we were really grateful for that because we were on a little bit a di different our bodies were on a different schedule coming from the United States. So we did enjoy eating late. Um, but yeah, you've got that time period there where um, nobody's open. And what about the food itself? Amazing. We had such a great experience. We enjoyed um, we enjoyed tapas, which is is a really great way to enjoy people, um, in, enjoy food with other people, um, ordering a few different things from the menu and sharing them so that you can try a lot of different things. I loved that part of it and really very reasonably priced, too. You know, we ate in we ate in, in some really nice places and um, it didn't it didn't cost as much as it would in the United States to have a few different things and a glass of wine. It was it was really lovely. And we also especially loved that we went to Valencia, which is the paella capital of the world. And so we yeah. ate in this really lovely restaurant um, on the beach where they served paella in the big paella pans. And that was a real treat. 
Nice, nice. Well, welcome home, and I can't wait to go to Spain. I've never been to Spain <laughs> of, of all the cities. I think uh, you will really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talking about cities. Let's talk about food and wines. Um, America's next great food cities. It is a massive article. We don't have time to go through it all. Uh, but there's some interesting things, especially for those supermarkets that have grocerants or thinking about grocerants. Uh, the number one city that they talk about is Cincinnati, Ohio, and Cincinnati's Finley Market which is a historic quarter centered around a mid-1800s hall brimming with fresh-picked produce and energy of thousands of hungry locals. Sounds like, you know, what you what you had there. Um, the, the One of the most famous dishes in Cincinnati is cinnamon-laced chili served over spaghetti. You know, it, the first time I went to Cincinnati, which was, you know, eons ago, um, and I had this whole, you know, chili on top of spaghetti. I, I'll never forget it, but I've never eaten it anyplace else. Where else should we be going? Well, Phil, what's interesting, you know, is some of the larger cities are on the on the list, like Boise, Idaho, Omaha, Nebraska. We've got Charlotte, North Carolina. But what else is interesting to me is the smaller cities. So as a result of the pandemic and the challenges, um, some entrepreneurs, food entrepreneurs and chefs have moved um, to smaller towns and really um, raised the level of the food scene in these these little towns, and some of those um, are Bozeman, Montana, um, Charlottesville, Virginia, Greenville, South Carolina. They've apparently have got really great food scenes going on. And one of the themes that I really saw throughout all of these was that a lot of these restaurants and chefs and people that are a part of the food scene are really champions for um, uh, helping um, everyone have equal access to food and building communities. And the one thing that I learned from this, and I highly recommend that you go online, you check out um, this article from Food and Wine. Um, lots of really great ideas, especially, as I said, for grocerants that really want to push the envelope forward. But the one thing that I didn't know, and we we're always constantly learning, um, is where the Reuben came from, which is <laughs> shocking to me. The Reuben sandwich, which I would have thought um, was probably a New York or an L.A. based, you know, creation actually comes out of Omaha, Nebraska. Did you know that? I did not know that. And I read this and I, re I read about how it was a popular sandwich for people to to eat uh, playing poker um, after work. And so um, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I would have never guessed that. So coming back from from Spain, and again, being surrounded by all kinds of wonderful foods, um, I'm sure that that the aromas of foods really played, you know, a big part. Absolutely, and you know, when you walk into that that big market in Valencia, just the the smells as you walk around are overwhelming. It's it's really lovely and um, and really makes you appreciate the food. So B. Wilson wrote a fascinating story, how we lost our sensory connection with food and how to restore it in The Guardian. And one of one of the things uh, that she writes that I think is very important for us all to pay attention to uh, 
is one of the most striking things, she says, about eating in the modern world is that we do so much as if it were sense blind. We switch off our senses when choosing what we eat. Our noses can distinguish fresh milk from sour milk, but we prefer to look at the use by date rather than sniffing. So I guess the question, and we've we've spoken a lot about how, you know, long COVID and, and COVID really reacts to the sense of smell. But what she points out, it's not just about COVID. Um, certainly, you know, for some people, that's a problem. But for most of us, we've really relegated our sense of smell to our sense of sight. Yes, it seems that we, you know, we're not interacting with our food the same way when you think about it. And, you know, we're, we're buying, we're going to the produce department, we're buying uh, products that are pre-sliced, pre-packaged, wrapped in plastic. So we're not, um, we're not touching the fruit for ripeness and, and, and smelling the fruit to see how, you know, if it's what we want to buy. So there is a different, there is a different interaction with our food. And I think also, you know, buying things based on what we read on packages and, um, buying, um, processed foods as opposed to, to more fresh foods and cooking. Um, there's, there's something lost there. Yeah, there is. Um, and also what, what she points out is now on Facebook, there's a Facebook group for long COVID sufferers um, who talk about how the joy gets sucked out of food for those who can't smell. Um, they lost their appetite while others had the opposite reaction, desperately eating more in an attempt to compensate for the loss of pleasure. Um, she goes on and on. Again, great article in The, in the Guardian. Highly recommend um, that we do it. There's one point that I want to make that's happened in England where um, what, they've, what they've done is they've actually added a course for, um, for young kids uh, to, to really talk about the sensory aspect of food. And what they find is the kids that go through their course, um, it's part of the national food strategy. Uh, Henry Dimbley in 2021 called for sensory food education to be a basic part of every young child's education for nursery and reception classes. And what they found is a study from Finland um, education of preschool children increased their willingness to eat a wide range of foods, including fruits, vegetables, and berries. And again, what B points out is try to know your food with your ears, nose, and hands, as well as with your eyes. Smell it, touch it, look at it before you taste it. Great, great advice. Absolutely great advice. Uh, so what's going on with the SNAP program right now? Well, it's it's looking like that um, a lot of people that are using the SNAP benefits are um, are unable to buy as much fruits and vegetables as they were maybe they were before. Um, the consumer price index for fruits and vegetables is two per. 2.3% higher in February. And that's the largest monthly increase since March 2010. So we're seeing some of this pandemic relief go away. And actually, the benefits are going to be dropping by at least $95 a month or more in the coming months for people that are on, on SNAP benefits. And again, you know, 
major, major part of the population, 42 million Americans mm -hmm. are on SNAP. So this is a huge problem that we've got. Um, also in 2021, a USDA report showed that 88% of SNAP participants are facing barriers to healthy eating, 61% cited affordability as the main barrier to achieving a healthy diet. Um, so, you know, what uh, what's the solution to all this? Well, I thought one of the interesting points in this article was was about um, retailers learning what their community, what is popular to eat within their community and helping them by offering recipes that are affordable that they can make with those ingredients that they already like to buy. And that's one of the things that we heard loud and clear from the RDBA virtual experience is it's really combining health. Um, health and nutrition, along with creativity for a recipe, along with affordability. So I think that's the magic formula right now that every supermarket is going to have to follow if, in fact, they're going to be able to meet the needs of shoppers. Um, talking about saving money, uh, what we find, uh, there's a company called Quench. They've been predicting food and beverage trends uh, for more than a decade. And what they find is here are the trends for this year, uh, for 2022, saving the environment, saving money, upcycle diets, regenerative agriculture, flexitarian kids, beyond carbon neutral, franken meat, adapt mushrooms, adaptogenic mushrooms, sorry, and buzz-free spirits. Um, so which of these trends do you think are probably the most important that we should be paying attention to? Well, I think the flexitarian kids is a really important one because, you know, we, we know that we have a health crisis with diet in this country. And um, this report shows that 67% of households are using more fruits and vegetables and snacks in their children's diets. And that is something I think that we should pay close attention to and continue to encourage um, while people are showing interest in that. Yeah, and, and the report also goes on to say 60% of kids-based households are eating plant-based options, mm -hmm. and more than 80% are offering those options to their kids. Um, so, so clearly something that's really important. Um, adaptogenic mushrooms, I think, is also something that we should be watching. Um, it currently generates $8 billion in sales and expected to grow to $19 billion by 2030. Uh, mushrooms are hot. Uh, there's 2,000 different varieties of mushrooms, but only 15 are actually recognized for functional benefits. And, you know, we talk a lot about the metaverse here, and we're going to continue to do that. In fact, in just a few weeks, in May 25th, along with In Context, um, we are doing a metaverse um, webcast. So I want you to be part of that. We've got some major retailers, major brands. Uh, we're going to post uh, the link on supermarketguru.com. So make sure you join us. Um, attendance is at no cost. We want you to understand where the metaverse is going, what can be done today, um, what is realistic, what's just fantasy that's out there. Uh, but Francis Hagan, uh, that Facebook whistleblower who went to Congress now has turned her focus to the metaverse. And what she's saying is that 
Facebook's version of the metaverse is going to repeat all of its past mistakes. What's that about, Sally? Yes, I think that she's saying that there is a huge concern for um, uh, privacy and um, Facebook monetizing uh, the data that they collect from other people. And with these new with these new devices that we're using in our homes and and how much time we're spending on that, it it does seem probable that it's an opportunity uh, for Facebook to um, gather more of our information. Yeah, and what she goes on to say is 70% of people don't trust Facebook Meta, the company, to handle privacy properly. That's not about the metaverse. And, and I think what's going to be important for us in the coming months and years is to separate the company Meta, Facebook, from the metaverse itself, um, because we're going to see a lot of other worlds that are out there in the metaverse. Um, also, what I didn't know. And what we should be watching is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, they're a nonprofit organization that defends civil liberties in the digital world. So it'll be interesting to see what um, what their findings are, what they're going to be doing. Um, also, for those trivia buffs, uh, the number one media platform in social media in China is actually WeChat. And it has a user base of over one billion people, 850 million of them are active users, and there are ma uh, massive data about the users in China, even more than Facebook is doing. So it's going to be an interesting privacy issue for us to address and to keep on watching. It's time for the Lemper Report. A recent study in Nature Communications takes a look at what environmental factors are actually impacting impacting people's food choices. So what's interesting about this study, beyond the resulting observations, is that it was conducted on a mobile app. The study did have limitations, the author says, um, no question about it, but because of the nature of the study itself, the researchers could not determine a causal relationship between the factors that they examined. So comes into question the whole study. The data that they collected relied on self-reporting through the app that I mentioned, which, as we all know, can lead to inaccuracies. The authors also report that their sample was an imperfect representation of the U.S. population because the sample was impacted by those who are more likely to use the app naturally. And those typically are women and people with higher income levels. Too often, we rely on apps or technology to make our surveys easier for us on the front and back end, and there's no doubt that this trend will continue. However, it's important to take a step back and look at the research itself to determine what's the best way to measure results, not the easiest or cheapest way. Back to the study. Overall, the scientists find that higher education levels, increased access to grocery stores, and reduced access to fast food had associations with a higher intake of fruits and vegetables, a lower intake of soda and fast food, a lower prevalence of obesity and being overweight. They also report that higher income levels among Hispanic populations lead to a higher intake of fruits and vegetables the associations were weaker among white populations, reinforcing the fact that we need to identify cultural eating patterns to correctly report food consumption data. Is there anything new and different in this study? I think not. 
For me, the wow is the bias that's created by using mobile app technology itself. On today's Bullseye, let's talk about sustainability. Earth Day took place last Friday, and it's the 52nd anniversary that demonstrates the support for environmental protection. This year's theme was invest in our planet. And while I applaud the movement, I have to say that just raising awareness over the past 50 years hasn't done too much to improve our environment. Also on Friday, President Joe Biden signed an executive order to strengthen our nation's forests, our communities, and our local economies. It was also the opportunity for many in our industry to reinforce their positions on sustainability. Michael Brown and Supermarket News did a terrific recap that you really should check out, going chain by chain to being able to see what each of them are doing, and in some cases, where we can measure the effectiveness. These companies are working to meet their environmental targets that they outlined and they have outlined for years. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Brown writes, sustainability has remained at the forefront of the American consumers' concerns. 69% of supermarket shoppers say they try to reduce their impact on the environment as much as possible. That according to a report released by the Coca-Cola Retailing Research Council of North America. So here's some examples of what Brown has written about and showed. Wegman says that it aims to shift all customers to reusable shopping bags, which it describes as the best option to solve the environmental challenge of single-use grocery bags. Currently, Wegmans has eliminated the plastic bags in 61 of its 106 stores, including all New York locations, plus selected stores in Virginia, Massachusetts, and Maryland. Hannaford aims to power its operations completely by renewable energy by 2024. Ahold, ExxonMobil, and packaging specialist Sealed Air have partnered on what they call a first-of-its-kind plastic food packaging recycling initiative here in the U.S. Associated Grocers of New England has installed the largest solar rooftop in New Hampshire. Southeastern Grocers plans to shift more sustainable packaging across its private label portfolio by the end of 2028. Jacksonville, Florida-based SEG said late yesterday that it will overhaul its private label packaging by phasing out the use of polystyrene, making all packaging reusable, recyclable, or industrially compostable. Town and country markets are partnering with local adventure travel company PacWesty to offer its online shoppers an all-electric zero-emissions grocery delivery service. Amazon and Target announced that they're seeking net-zero certification from the International Living Future Institute for two of their store locations as they continue to take steps to meet their sustainability goals. Albertsons has embarked on a new corporate sustainability and responsibility strategy. You probably saw that last week with the launch of an environmental, social and governance framework called Recipe for Change. Sam's Club aims to transform its members mark private label into a more sustainable brand. Once again, our supermarket retailers prove that they're the leaders and with their uh, communications can affect change. Kudos. So, Sally, any comments today? Yes, we do have some comments. Okay, so Scene Look says, hey, Sally, how were the prices in Spain compared to the U.S.? 
And um, what I would say about that is that um, definitely uh, fresh fruits and vegetables were a lot less than they are here. Um, I imagine that has a lot to do with, they have so much farming um, happening close by. So these, these, these wonderful fruits and vegetables don't have very far to travel to get to people to buy. Um, I noticed that uh, meat prices were probably about the same as what we're experiencing here. So definitely that, um, that inflation we've seen with meat. Um, as far as dining out, it was interesting to me because I think you can, you can eat at a nicer restaurant um, and have you know, have a, have a cocktail and have some really nice food for about 25 to 30% less in Spain than, than you can here. So that was a real, that was a real treat. And also uh, in Spain, the tips are included, correct? They are. And, um, and then it is nice to give a little extra after that, but, um, but they're, um, they're, Tipping percentages of and what they expect is a lot different because they're getting they're getting paid more for that job. Um, and then we've got uh, Mary Miller asks any news on the avian flu. So what we what we know so far is that there are millions of birds, millions of hens that have to be called uh, killed, if you would, uh, because of the avian flu. The price of eggs have about doubled. Um, there's no end in sight so far. In talking to some poultry producers, they're very concerned about it. And frankly, they're concerned that it may continue a little bit longer. Uh, but in the meantime, get ready for anything to do with eggs to go up in price. With that, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, don't forget, go to supermarketguru.com. Check out Lost in the Supermarket. Check out uh, Farm Food Facts, all of our webcasts, also all of our archives of the Lemper Report Live. Sign up for our newsletters, and we'll see you again here next week, same time, 1130 Pacific, 230 Eastern Time. And until then, have a great week.